0: If I were to ask each of you to just stand in and, and balance on one foot, how long do you think you could do that? Two seconds. Two seconds. All right, well, that's, that's two seconds. All right. You think anybody could last a minute? You think you could last a minute? Yeah, you could last a minute. What about two minutes? Five minutes? Not a chance? Yeah. At what point does it start getting iffy? I don't know if I could make it that far. An hour? Ooh, that's a long time. I'd say yesterday, just, just for the fun of it, i said, say, how, how long could I go? And after about three minutes, it was starting to hurt. <laughs> so so I, I just decided to give up. I, I could have gone a little longer, but I was just like, you know what? That's, I'm just, I'm done with that. Well, the world record holder for standing on one foot, are you ready for this? 76 hours and 40 minutes. Three days on one foot straight. No sleep. no sleep. And that's the thing. It's hard enough just to stay awake for three days, much less stay awake standing on one foot for three days. Well, the gentleman who holds that record, he, he also happens to hold, hold 69 other interesting records of various kinds, like moonwalking for nearly 50 kilometers in 24 hours straight. That's a thing, I guess. That's around 31 miles moonwalking straight for 24 hours. Uh, He once traveled over 140 miles up and down escalators for 146 hours straight. That is six days straight. And then he has 66 other records. He's a bit of a professional record breaker. This is kind of his thing. This is what he does. But I found it interesting that when he was interviewed about the record for standing on one foot that long, he, he is quoted as saying, That if they paid me a million dollars, I would never do that again. (laughs) And he said, it was very, very painful. But there's the record, because he's immortalized now in the Guinness Book of World Records, I suppose. Three days on one foot. And I don't know how many of us would, again, we're we're really starting to push it, even as we get into three, four, five minutes, ten minutes. You're really starting to push it at that point. Even for the, mo- the fittest of us in the room, it might be a challenge to go that long. But what if I told you that, as, however long it was that, that you could balance on one foot, that, that I could teach you all of the law of God while you were standing on one foot? Interesting idea. There was once a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Hillel. He was a very influential rabbi. He was. He died when Jesus would have been around the age of 15 years old or so. Uh, Those who followed him became known as the House of Hillel and the School of Thought. There was a School of Thought known as the School of Hillel. The Jewish individuals that followed his teachings, that believed what he believed, uh, they were following after him. And there is an exchange that's been preserved for us between Hillel and this Gentile man who came to Hillel. Apparently there had been some dialogue between this individual and Hillel at different points. And uh, he wanted to make him a proselyte. Hillel wanted to proselytize this man, to make him become a a convert to Judaism. And he, he came to Hillel with a bit of a mocking challenge. He said, oh, make me a proselyte. Go ahead, you can convert me on the condition that you teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. Which is to say, oh yeah, I'll convert if you can teach me everything there is to know before I lose my balance maybe that's three minutes, maybe that's five, maybe if he's particularly fit, he can go 15 minutes. Or even if he lasts, even if he's the world record holder at 76 days, could you still teach him the entire law in 67, in just three days? Is that possible? Well, this is how Hillel responded, because of course the challenge in that is, it's, it's a mocking challenge, right? This man was essentially saying, you're never going to convert me, because I'm not going to submit, I'm not going to listen and try to learn all of your law. But Hillel's response was very interesting. He said this, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is Commentary. Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah, or the whole law. The rest is commentary. I find it interesting that Jesus actually says something very similar to that in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the golden rule as we know it today. Matthew chapter 7 says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's really like the positive version of saying the same thing, and then Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets, or this, this sums up the law and the prophets. All the Bible's commands can be summarized in this way, as we now know it, as the golden rule, do to others what you would have them do to you. But the question becomes, what does that look like? Who gets to determine which actions are loving or unloving? Are there things that can appear to be unloving on the surface and actually be loving? Are there things that can appear to be loving on the surface and actually be unloving? And as Hillel would say, well, that's why we have the rest of the law, the rest of the Scriptures. It, it, It helps us understand the ins and outs and answer all of those questions. And in our text today, we have a similar discussion on the law. What what is the greatest commandment? You know, Jesus has been duking it out with the different religious leaders in chapter in Mark chapter 12, where we are picking things up today. He's been duking it out these different battle of wits, if you will, between the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the, the Sadducees, these different groups that are coming against so him they are trying to trick him, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to discredit him to the people. They're trying to do something to where that, that he would say something that would be an arrestable offense with the governing authorities. But in our text today, we have something that's a little bit different. A scribe is going to come to Jesus, and he doesn't seem to be attempting to trick him. It seems as though this scribe is genuinely asking Jesus a question and wants to learn from our Lord. And from Jesus, we will learn that if you wanted to sum up the entire Bible, you want to boil everything down, it comes down to two key commands. So we ask, what should be the greatest priorities for, for us as Christians here today? What should be the greatest priorities in our lives? Well, Jesus is going to answer the question here. It's love God and love Others. Let's get into our text, Mark chapter 12. I'm going to pick things up in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, you have truly said that He is one, and that there is no one, beso- no other besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So we break this text down, just a few things that I want to make by, work, uh, by way of observation of the scribe. I, the scribe really does seem to be coming to Jesus honestly, right? He, he, he does not seem to have these ulterior motives that the other individuals who had approached Jesus, they have. So he really provides for us a bit of a literary foil. He's a, he's a, he stands in stark contrast to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the other religious leaders that had come to Jesus up to this point. He stands in stark contrast to them because he sees that, that Jesus has answered well to all of the disputes, all the questions that they've tried to trip him and, and track him, uh, trip him up, trap him in. And here he says, ah, Jesus is, he's doing a pretty good job. I wonder how he'll respond to this. So he asks him the question. He wants to learn. And you can even tell from his response at the end that, that he was not disappointed. He, he did not have this ulterior motive that the others had. He asks, which of all of God's commandments is the most important? And that's Notice the way the ESV has translated that phrase. Uh, which is most important? Uh, which commandments is the most important of the commandments? And it's a little bit of a, a I want to say paraphrastic translation, that literally it's which commandment is first of all, or, or which commandment has, has first priority, which commandment is the foremost in that sense of all of the commandments. You know, So he wasn't asking which was the first commandment given, all right? That would have been maybe perhaps an interesting trivia question, but you just open up. the earliest page and you'll see the first commandments there. That's not what he was after. He wasn't after what was the first commandment, which is the foremost, which one has priority, which one has supremacy. Which commandments has, is the most important, which is the foremost? There's a way in which you can never really go wrong as, as a believer in asking those kinds of questions about priorities. What should be the priorities of the Christian life? What, what should I give myself to? What, what is most important that I need to direct myself to that first and foremost? And then as I move down the line of importance and move down the line of, of premacy, I can begin to address other things. It is always beneficial to ask what my priorities should be. And that is the question from this scribe, And Jesus is going to give not just the first priority, which is what the scribe asked for. He's also going to give the first and the second. Priorities one and two. Let's begin with the first priority, to love God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is the great passage known as the great Shema. That word Shema is the Hebrew word that means listen or hear. Pay attention to this. And that's the first part of the quotation. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. Pay attention, O Israel. So if you would actually turn back with me to Deuteronomy. We're going to spend a little bit of time there this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what Jesus quotes. Context of Deuteronomy chapter 6, just to refresh ourselves of what the book of Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy, the the name of that book, literally means second law. The people of Israel, God has miraculously pulled them out of the land of Egypt. They were slaves in the land of Egypt and God rescued them from the land of Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness. He brought them to Mount Sinai where Moses was up on the mountain and he provided the law to Moses. And Moses communicates that to the people. And then God makes a covenant with the people. These are the things that I will do. These are the things that I expect you to observe and obey. And the people said, yes, everything that you've commanded, we will do. We will do it. And they make that commitment several times in the book of Exodus. Well, as you are reading through the Old Testament and you're getting through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and it's in the book of Numbers where you find that the people do not follow through With your obedience to the Lord. God brings them right up to the edge of the promised land. They're right to the brink and and they're about to go in. It's, it's, It's time to enter into the promised land. But they send the spies in, and the spies bring back a report that there are people in the land that they don't believe that they could overcome. And so, out of fear, they choose to not follow the Lord into the promised land. And as a result, they are disciplined by the Lord. They have to remain in the wilderness for 40 years. And now the book of Deuteronomy comes about as those 40 years have been completed. They come to the point of, again, right to the edge of the promised land. They're they're right there on the brink of it all. And Moses is reminding the people of everything that God has said. So the book Deuteronomy, second law, this is the second iteration of the law, the reminders of the law in this is the context in which we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm just going to pick it up in verse 1. This is the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, And that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses is laying it out before the people. This is it. I want you to to dwell in the land. I want you to flourish in the land. I want you to be there a long, long time. And I I want you to have all this flourishing and all this great things happening there. And if you're to receive those blessings, this is what you need to do. This is what needs to happen. And so we pick it up in verse 4. Hear, O Israel. And this is what Jesus quotes. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And Jesus says, this right here is the greatest commandment. This is the foremost. This commandment should receive the top priority of everything else. All the other rules, all the scriptures. This one, it stands above them all. And we could ask a few questions at this point. We could ask, why? Why is this one the most important? Why is it most important of of everything that we're called to be and do in life that we love God above everything else? I think there's several things that we could say to answer that question. The first, and most fundamentally and most basically, is that we should love God because He is worthy of our love. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our affection. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy because of who He is. He, of course, is the Creator. He's the sustainer. He has made all things. He is the only fully independent being. As we spent time in our prayer time this morning looking at Isaiah chapter 40. God asked the question, who is there that's like me? Who are you going to compare me to? There's no one like me. God is entirely unique. He is the most glorious, the most magnificent being. And just because of who he is, he is worthy of our love. There are some relationships within your life that there are people that you have a love for just because of who they are. Even if sometimes it's it's challenging to love them, you love them just because of who they are, right? This is often the case with our family. We, We have a natural affection for our parents, for our children, for our siblings. It's just naturally there because of who they are. If that's true on that small human scale, how much more is that true? How much greater is that true with God, the greatest being in all the universe, the one who's created us, the one who sustains us? We should love Him because of who He is. We should also love God because of what He has done. Again, He has made us. He's created us. He's given us life and breath. In Him we move and live and move and have our being. And He has sent Christ to save us, as we observe in the Lord's table, reflecting upon the great sacrifice of Christ and the love with which He loved us. First John says, we love Him because He first loved us. And so again, if you just think of it, about the, the concept, just on a, on a very human Level just when we when we receive kindness from someone it it naturally produces a response in us that of, of love for that person as well there's it just naturally flows out of us how much more again if that is true on this tiny infinitesimally small scale on a human level how much true should that be on a grand divine level with the God who has given us everything good that we have is from His hand. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our devotion. And thus, this should be our top priority. The next question that flows from that is, okay, well, what does that look like? It's like, sure, we're we're, we're to love God, all right? Okay, sure, He's worthy of our love. Well, what does that look like? What does it mean that we come before Him and to love Him? Well, first I would suggest to you that to love God is to know Him. If we are to love God, we must first know God. We must get to know who He is, what He is like. You know, the passage that Jesus quotes, and as we see here in Deuteronomy, He begins with the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a statement about who God is. This is the one you are to love. He is the Lord, that's the covenant name of God. He is Yahweh, He is Adonai, He is I am who I am, the self-existing one. An entire sermon could be preached on just the name of God Himself. He is God. He is the supreme being, the creator, the sustainer of all things as we have just discussed and He is the one true God. There is none other. There is no other divine being. There are not many gods, but there is but one true and living God. So with that introduction, listen, Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one that that begins on that journey of understanding who God is, to love God is, to know him. Of course, we, as we continue to desire to get to know God, okay, we have, there is but one almighty true God. Well, who is he? What's he like? Has he communicated to us? Is is there things that, that he desires from us? We get to know him by getting into his word, right? That's surprise, surprise, right? It's, that's how we get to know him. He has communicated to us. He has spoken. We pursue knowing our God through knowing his word. Scripture reveals so many things about our God, and the more, the more that you learn, the more we should respond with love for our God. If you've ever done an in depth study on the attributes of God and and just gazed upon the greatness and all the wonderful things that the scripture says about his character, his nature, his attributes, there are different resources that are available that that walk through the attributes of God. Or maybe you've done a study before on on the names of God. We look throughout the Old Testament and we see different names that are assigned unto God. We think of, of Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. Or the Lord sees, and I'm not going to remember all the Hebrew words off the top of my head for all of these names, but there are so many names that are associated and attributed to the Lord, the one who hears, the one who sees, the one who knows. Doing a study on the names of God is an incredible thing that warms our affections and the more we learn and, and, and bask in the greatness of who God is that is going to produce within us a love for the God who has revealed himself to love God is to know him second to know God is to o- to love God is to obey him Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength now, we could try to go and break down each of those, that list of things. And people have done that. And I think, do think there can be some benefit to understanding that. You know, we look at the heart. Right? That's the seat of the, the affections and the emotions that are there. There's the soul. That's the core of our being. The, the mind. That's our intellect. The things that we think about. How we, how we utilize the brain that God has given us. Strength. Our, our physical ability to, to just do things and the way we live our lives. But when you bring all of that together... What is that communicating? It's the totality of life, right? It's not, it's not to communicate to, to, that you're to love God with just with this aspect of your being over here and this aspect of your being over there, and, and you just compartmentalize these different aspects of who we are into these different categories. No, it's a it's an all-encompassing love. Everything that we are, everything that makes you you, and everything that makes me me, love God with that in its entirety. So we could ask questions about our love for Him. Do I love Him such that my affections are drawn to Him? Do I, do I love God with, with what I spend my time thinking about and dwelling upon? Do I love the Lord with, even with the entertainment that I consume and take in? Is my behavior as I interact with others, does it demonstrate a love for God? Which We'll get into that more momentarily. But it's our whole being, everything that we are. All of our assets. All to love the Lord your God. This will impact the way we think. It will impact our affections. It will impact our decision-making. It will impact our finances. It will impact every area of life. If We are loving God. And most importantly, this will affect how we relate to His commands. The things that God has said, I want you to do this. I want you to live your life this way. I want you to order your life in this way. John chapter 14 Verse 15, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commands. And John wrote in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commands, and his commandments are not burdensome. And I really love that John adds that, that final portion of that verse there, and his commandments are not burdensome. So often we can think, oh, all these, all these commandments, all these rules, all these things that we're to observe. John says, no, they're not to burden you, they're, they're actually what help give you life. It helps you flourish, it helps your life. That's a side point I could get off on for a while. But if you just think for a moment, if, if everything that we just said about who, what, who God is, if all that is true, if, if everything that we have just said about who He is and what He has done, if all that is true, then keeping His commandments is the thing that makes the most sense in pursuit of loving Him. If God is the creator, the sustainer, if God is the one who has given you life and has given you new life in Jesus Christ, then yeah, obedience to His commands should be a no-brainer from that standpoint. Now, I remember when I was uh, in my teen years as I was freshly converted and interacting with this, com- this, this statement of Jesus for the first time. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And the first time I, I think I had heard it, of course, several times in the midst of growing up. But as a new believer, just really diving in and, and trying to understand the scriptures for the first time, I really, it kind of rubbed me a, a, a wrong way in a way. And I, I will explain why. Just a few weeks prior to that experience, I was interacting with this individual that I had, I had just met him, and he, there, was, there was him, and there was his girlfriend, and I had just met him, and we were, we were playing a game of pickup baseball in the park, right? We're just interacting with him for the very first time. And there was a moment where he used a phrase similar to this. He wanted his girlfriend to bring him something, and she was being hesitant to do it. And so he said, well, you know, if you loved me, you would do that for me yeah, he did. He sure did. And there's a sense in which, you know, depending on the context, it may or may not be true. It may not be an accurate thing that if if there's love, then there's that kind of follow-through on something like that. But when I watched him do that, and it just like, you know, she could turn that right around on you and say, well, if you loved me, you wouldn't manipulate me with those kinds of words, right? You wouldn't try to produce certain things based on that kind of of language. And it just challenged me when I then, a few weeks later, was encountering Jesus in this text where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Well, why did I have such a negative reaction to that young man and his girlfriend? Why is it okay for Jesus to use this kind of language? I think are several things that we could say to that. I, we, did, we did just talk about how God is worthy of our love. He's worthy of our affection. He's worthy of our love for Him. And that would be expressed in the manner in which He commands. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who is over all things. He is God after all. Therefore, it is right for us to observe what He has commanded. But consider this as well. Consider who we are in relation to Almighty God. Obedience to God shows Him honor. Obedience to God shows our dependence upon him. Obedience to God demonstrates, it reveals that he is the supreme being who is worthy of our obedience and worship. And honoring God and demonstrating his supremacy, that's a very legitimate way to express our love for the one who has created us. So for Jesus to say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments is Yes, of course, because obedience and keeping those commandments honors the Lord, and in so honoring the Lord, we are loving the Lord. There is a way in which some of our human relationships can reflect that kind of dynamic, We read through Scripture about different obligations that Scripture places upon different human relationships. If a husband loves his wife, it should be revealed in how he interacts with her, how he cares for her, how he provides for her. If a wife loves her husband, it should be evident in how she interacts with him, how she helps him, how she respects him. That should be things that are happening. However... (laughs) In our human relationships, using that kind of line, oh, if you love me, this is something that you would do for me. That ends up being a weapon in the hand to try to bring about your selfish desired ends. And that can be a very unloving thing to do itself. So if those conversations need to happen, it needs to happen in a different kind of context, and I would certainly recommend having a, a pastor or counselor helping guide through that conversation. But for God... God cannot act selfishly. He cannot be unrighteously selfish, and so it is only good and right and appropriate for Him to establish that level of standard. If you love me, you will keep my commands, because that honors me. And you demonstrate your love through your honoring of me. So love for God is revealed in how we live, how we live in obedience to Him, And again, the question comes back to, okay, well, how do we know what's right? How do we know what He wants from us? Of course, God tells us, right? He doesn't leave us in a lurch on that point. He doesn't leave us wondering, oh, I I just wonder what God wants me to do in my life. No. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Micah 6a, where where the prophet cries out, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. God's not left it a mystery. He's revealed it, and it's in His Word. So if we give ourselves to the Scriptures, we will know what he has commanded. And in the context of Deuteronomy 6, Moses is going to go on to say, hey, these words which I command you today, they shall be in your mouth. You shall talk of them when you rise up, when you lay down, when you walk by the way. You shall, you shall have them behind them on your hands. They shall be over the doorposts of your home. You shall have them on your forehead. They should be everywhere in your home and in your life, always confronted with the Word of God. Because it is in knowing the Word of God that we know what His commandments are. And it is in knowing the commandments that we can walk in obedience to what He has commanded. So if we do not know the Word of God, we certainly will not know the God of the Word and we will not know what He desires from us. And so this is again one of the the reasons why it is good to pursue regular habits of time in the Word. This is, after all, loving God is to be our number one priority. Everything else in life is secondary to this. Yes, even eating and sleeping, all that is secondary to this one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second command, to love others. Jesus says back in Mark chapter 12, verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these. Here Jesus quotes from Leviticus, which of course is everybody's favorite book of the Bible. Here we are in February. Uh, it's usually about the time you hit, hit Leviticus and it's, the slog kind of begins there. You're trying to slog through like, okay, okay. A lot of people fall off the Bible reading wagon train at that point, and that's, that's common. Well, here's maybe a reason to, to persevere through that a little bit. Jesus quotes from Leviticus. Actually, before I go to Leviticus, I, I want to highlight just a few other passages of Scripture, and then we'll go to Leviticus. Uh, John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, again, this is on the theme of loving others. This is the second of 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 the two commandments, the greatest commandments, loving God, love others. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then down in verse 11, he says again, Beloved, if God so loved us, and he's talking about the sacrifice of Christ, he sent Jesus into the world. If God so loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. And then again, down in verse 20, he says this, If anyone says, I love God, but then he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John connects the love of God to love of neighbor. He brings them together. These two things go together. If you love God, that will be demonstrated with how you interact with other individuals. If you truly and genuinely love others, it can only be because it is flowing out of the love that you have for God. It is impossible for us to say that we love God while treating other human beings that God has made in His image like garbage. Those things just don't go together. It it, it doesn't make sense. You're going to say that you love God, but then you're going to treat His creation, the one who bears His image, the one that you're going to treat Him like that garbage. That, That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't jive if you say you love God, you will also love people. Now, the question comes again, okay, well, what does that look like? What does it mean to love one another? And this is where I do want to take us to Leviticus. Well, I'm jumping the gun on myself again. There's one other passage (laughs) in my notes that I almost skipped over because it, 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 it speaks of how we love one another. There's various passages of Scripture that we could turn to that, that talk about how we interact with one another. There are, it's all throughout the New Testament, if you've ever done a study on the one another's of Scripture, those are the ways that we can love one another. But I'm just trying to summarize a few of the things. We can show, love others by showing deference to one another, seeking the interests of others. The most famous text for this, Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. We show deference to others. We love others by showing deference by looking for their interests and not just selfishly concerned about my own agenda, what I want to accomplish, what I think is good and right and important. No, I look out for the needs of others. Jesus has had to correct his disciples several times as we've gone through the book of Mark. We've seen this. They're all arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven talking, jockeying for position in this way. Lord, grant us to sit at your right hand in your kingdom. You want to be the greatest? Look out for others. That's how you be the greatest. Quit looking out for yourself. Look out for others. Pursuing my own agenda, my own priorities, my own advancement, whatever it is that you want to think you need to accomplish, that's not how we love others. We love others by showing deference because it's not about you, right? Life isn't all about you. The universe doesn't revolve around you. We're so tempted to live that way. So we should be patient with one another. Be patient with with our children be patient with people who try our patience in different spheres and areas of life let let the vehicles merge in the interstate and all those sorts of things (laughs) yeah second and related to this is service that of service to love others is to serve them and we've talked about this several times in the book of mark already as well jesus himself said that he did not come to be served but to, to but to serve he came as the example of service to others If anyone wants to be the greatest in the kingdom, they must be servant of all and least of all. Now, there will be times when loving others and serving others and showing deference to others means that we may even do things that other people may not like or appreciate. But it's love and it's service to them. And now I do want to take us to Leviticus. All right, let's flip back to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, there's so much in Leviticus that's considered part of the holiness code. This is what it looks like to be holy. This is what it looks like to come before God in purity. And there's so many things in here that are worthy of of study and understanding what's going on in these texts. But in Leviticus 19, a passage of scripture about relating to one another where we see multiple examples of what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself so I'm going to pick things up in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 19. And then we're going to read several verses here, and it's going to culminate in the verse that Jesus quoted. But verse 9 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. Well, we're not in, in an agrarian context, so how are we supposed to understand this in our modern context? Well, this is a provision for allowing those who are less fortunate than us to have a means to sustain themselves. You essentially say, okay, you want to eat. Well, rather than just, just a handout, well, here's the gleanings of the field. Go and gather them. Work for your keep, work for your food. And there was a way to provide that. They could make a living for themselves. They could survive in that way. Verse 11, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of the Lord, your, uh, uh, profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Loving your neighbor means you speak truth to them, and again, that's something that Paul's going to say in Ephesians. Let each of you speak truth to his neighbor. It means we don't take things that don't belong to us. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You can love your neighbor by giving them what is due. If you've hired them for a wage, you've made an agreement with them, pay them what they, you owe them. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And you can love your disabled neighbors by showing them kindness and not mistreating them, but treating them with the dignity that they deserve as image bearers. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You, you love your neighbor just by doing justice, right? Don't, don't show deference to someone. Oh, well, this person has a lot of influence, so I'm going to say guilty or not guilty based on that. No, you, you, you honor them. You don't have any partiality to the rich or to the poor. You do what is right, what is just. Verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. We're not talking behind people's backs lying about them, trying to bring them down in some way. I found that phrase, you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. That's an interesting phrase. The idea with that is if someone's life is in danger, there's something that's going to be harmful for them and harmful for their well-being. You shouldn't do things that would get in the way of resolving that. You should help people. (laughs) You should help them. If you see someone in distress, if you see someone that their life is in danger in some way, if you have the ability to help, you should help. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. I think this one is is a difficult one for us that phrase, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, that's, that's the idea of you've got something against your neighbor. Rather than just letting bitterness sit in your heart, you go talk to them about it. You confront them. You talk to them. You, you, you work it out. One translation says, you shall surely reprove your neighbor. Loving your neighbor means you confront when confrontation is necessary. And then this section of Leviticus 19, it ends with verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. Be forgiving. Forgiving. That's the context of that command that Jesus quoted. He says this is the second of all the commandments, the second greatest of them all. The second most important, love your neighbor as yourself. Back to Mark 12, there's just a couple more things that we need to see in Mark chapter 12 before we finish our time together today. Jesus says, there is no commandment that is greater than these two things. These should be the top two priorities in your life, loving God and loving others. When you love God, that will naturally flow into a love of others. When you're loving others, it is only because you're, it is flowing out of a love of God. Everything else in God's Word helps us understand what this looks like, how this plays itself out, how we think about loving God, how we worship the Lord, how we interact with His Word, how, how we pray to Him. All the things that govern our relationship to the Lord and to others, it all comes back to these two things commands. The Ten Commandments can be divided up as commands teaching us how to love God or love others. It's a summary of all the law, all the prophets, all the Scriptures. And So notice the response of the scribe. In verse 32, Mark chapter 12, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. And you have truly said that he is one, affirming who God is. And there is none other besides him. And to love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Think about all the sacrifices, all the offerings that are offered continually in the temple place, year after year, day after day. That's the priestess, a never-ending duty, they do that continually carrying out that task time after time after time. And this scribe here says, Yeah, you're right, Jesus. Love God, love others. That's more important than all of our ritual sacrifice. Time doesn't allow for it. I'm already running a little bit long here today. There's a handful of texts in the Old Testament that speak to this reality. Even in the Old Testament, even in the context of the the Old Covenant with the sacrificial system and everything, perhaps the most famous of the texts is Samuel's words to Saul where he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. God had given a command to Saul. Saul, go take care of these Amalekites over here. Saul failed to carry out that command. And so God was removing the kingdom from Saul. And Saul says, well, I I saved these alive because it's going to be for sacrifice. Obedience, that's more important than all of this. One more thing we need to note about Jesus' response. Verse 34, this is where we wrap up this text. Jesus, verse 34, he said, when he saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You are not far from the kingdom of God. This is is a very important point to note here. And I was tempted not to go into this just for the sake of time today, but because of the context in which we find ourselves today and because there are some conversations in theological spheres surrounding this particular text, I felt it wise and worth going into just a little bit. There are debates about this text and whether or not Jesus was was giving the scribe good news or bad news. And when I say that, there's, there's a school of thought that taught, that believes that all of Scripture should be divided into two primary categories, the law and the gospel. And everything that is, a, is an imperative, everything that's a command in Scripture, that's law, that's law, that's burdensome. But everything that talks about Jesus and what He has done, all the, all the indicative verbs, all the verbs that talk about what has been done, that's, that's the gospel, that's the good news. And so you have law and gospel. And so from that perspective, they would look at a text like this and say that Jesus is heaping upon the scribe more law for him. He's, he's being going to be burdened down by more law. And so there's this hotbed of, of discussion about those that try to force that rubric upon every passage of Scripture. Everything is either law or gospel, and we want to try to avoid the law and pay attention to gospel. I am not an individual who subscribes to that kind of breakdown. I don't see Scripture providing for us those kinds of categories. I do, there are obviously laws in Scripture, and there is gospel truth in Scripture. Those are obviously categories that exist, but I don't believe we can Arbitrarily subdivide everything in God's word into these categories, and that they don't overlap, they don't connect, they don't touch in any way. I don't think Scripture teaches that, because I don't believe that that everything that God commands for us is burdensome. The people that would approach this, there's 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 a perspective in which I appreciate what they're trying to avoid and what they're trying to promote. Because in so doing, they're trying to to demonstrate that there is nothing that we can do to earn eternal life. And I agree with that point. And so law serves to expose our hearts to show us that we can't measure up to the standard. But praise God, it's been done in Jesus Christ. Amen? He has finished it. He has done it. Everything has been done for us. We simply have to believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Amen and amen. I agree with that wholeheartedly with all of my heart. But to artificially create subcategories of this and try to fit everything in God's Word into these categories when Scripture doesn't command us to do that, I believe is artificial. And I do not believe that everything God has commanded us is intended to be burdensome for us. 1 John says His commandments are not burdensome. They're intended for our life, for our flourishing Nevertheless, we do want to think carefully about what Jesus says here. The scribe agreed with Jesus, and so as a result, he seems to be on the correct pathway. He's on a journey, a spiritual journey of sorts. And Jesus says, you're so close. You're right there. But did his statement there save him? The answer to that is no. Trying your hardest to keep these two commandments does not save. What is described here is something to pursue. It should be our, our top priorities in our lives, but, but that pursuit in itself does not produce life. It doesn't save us. We must come to the Lord in faith. We must believe in Jesus Christ and His finished work upon the cross, and that is what this man was missing up to this he was on the right pathway. He was, he was so close. Jesus says, he's cl- you're, you're so close to entering into the kingdom. But he did not yet, it seems, have faith in Jesus as the Messiah. As the one who would, could cleanse him from his sins and give him the power and the strength to do what is directed to do here. Because that's the rub right there. The truth is, is that we cannot love God with our whole being and love others rightly if we do not first have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us empowering us in that task. We need God's grace even for the most fundamental and basic of all the commands of Scripture. But thanks be to God, He gives more grace. He gives us the grace. He gives us the strength that we need. And in His grace, He has given us the strength to make loving God our number one priority, to make loving others the next priority after that. And through faith in Christ and dependence upon the Spirit, we can pursue these two priorities And I pray that he would help us to grow in these priorities together. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for our time together today. Thank you for this text. Thank you uh, for this distillation of the law that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, every aspect of who we are, our whole being. Lord, it will impact everything that we think, say, and do if we are pursuing this as our number one priority Lord, it also will affect how we interact and treat others. If we are loving you, it will naturally impact how we love others. Lord, help us to be faithful in this regard. Lord, we know that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot accomplish this in our own strength. We need your spirit to be at work within us. I ask and I pray today that you would strengthen us for this, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. I pray this in Christ's name.